It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm not going to actually start today by asking you guys how you're doing because I, I often do because I know it's it hasn't been easy. You know, these past few weeks, we've actually seen America come together in a somewhat unimaginable way. While so many Americans continue to battle the coronavirus pandemic, yeah, remember that, another pandemic charged its way to the forefront. And that is systemic racism, the kind that infiltrates many institutions, not just in some cases, like in the Minneapolis Police Department, where that one police officer murdered George Floyd on Memorial Day. It's also in the educational system, but we're talking about the kind that's got a milder surface tone, but is nonetheless deeply ingrained in corporate America. I personally was stricken by a single statistic that I pulled out of the May jobs report that came out last Friday, that while the U.S. unemployment rate fell overall, which was, by the way, a total surprise, everybody thought it would spike to 20%, it fell to 13% and change, it also fell for working whites, but it increased for the black working population, which was already higher than the white unemployment rate. So enough already. How do we dismantle these systems, close the economic gaps, and give everyone a fair chance to go all the way to the top? I do not have the answers, but I do know where to find them. This week's podcast guest wears many hats. He's a serial entrepreneur, international speaker, author who is fighting the good fight with his latest venture, BCT Partners. And this is a company, multi-million dollar company, that teaches corporate America how to blast away unconscious bias, and embrace something completely new and way more welcome. Speaking of welcome, we welcome co-founder, chairman, and CEO of BCT Partners, Randall Pinkett, to Everyone Talks to Liz. Hi, Randall. Hey, Liz. Good to be on the program and a very timely conversation for us to be having and one I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it's, it's timely, but under any circumstance, Randall, you know this podcast is all about the climb and people who have such an incredible story where, yeah, they, they hit multiple failures and they hit multiple mountains and they made their way through them to find really, really solid success. And uh, that's you. So regardless of all that this country has endured over the past couple of weeks and what, quite frankly, Black America has endured over decades, you'd be here anyway. So we're thrilled to have you. Um, I want to get to who you are. You were born in Philly and raised in New Jersey. What was your upbringing like where you went from a childhood to being a Rhodes Scholar? I mean, kill me now. I wasn't one. And uh, five different degrees, incredible education and incredible success. Tell me about your childhood. Well, I've I've been blessed, Liz, uh, along many points in my my journey, uh, beginning with my parents, my, my, my father was a trailblazer himself. He attended uh, Morgan State, a historically black college and university, and then went on to the Wharton School of Business in 1969, where he got Mm -hmm. his MBA. And then he got a job at Goldman Sachs uh, in the early 1970s. So you can imagine 
his experience juxtaposed against mine. Uh, sadly, my father passed away when I was in high school, uh, but my mother has and continues to be a significant influence in my life. Uh, at times, she worked two jobs uh, in the wake of my father's passing to make sure that bills still got paid and food was on the table and clothes on my brother's back and my back. And I got to, to Rutgers University uh, studying engineering, uh, competing on the track and field team, uh, getting involved in extracurricular activities. But I, I will admit, and my mother will, will uh, affirm, that I, I was a knuckleheaded young man. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I had all the questions and I had all the answers. She <laughs> <laughs> uh, had a really difficult time raising me as a young black man, but she was steadfast. And uh, I came to a crossroads in my first year, first semester of college, where to make a long story short, I had to make some decisions about what I wanted to do with my life. And, mm-hmm. and I came to the conclusion that my father, having just passed away that, that same year, that it's time for me to honor his memory and to honor her sacrifice and really commit to being the best that I can be. And that was a turning point for me. And, and I went from the knuckleheaded young guy who gave his mother headaches to, to being the Rhodes Scholar and the you know, top of his class in engineering at Rutgers and an entrepreneur as an undergraduate student. So that's really how my story unfolded. You just said, uh, you know, backing up a little bit that your mom was trying to raise a son as a single mother. Forget black and white. That in and of itself is incredibly difficult. But what challenges? Because we've all really started to think about this after George Floyd. Surprised it took this long. But what challenges did she face raising a black son? It's it's much of what you, you might expect, particularly given that I was born in Philadelphia, but at a very early age, when I was one, we moved to a predominantly white suburb in New Jersey, uh, East Windsor. And this was in 1972. So we're talking just on the heels of Brown versus Board of Education, where we're integrating schools. And my experience, I am the, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of parents of the civil rights movement who wanted their kids to have equal opportunity. And we were the guinea pigs in school systems and my dad in corporate America for how ready or unready these institutions were for us to diversify them. And so you can imagine what the challenges were. It was low expectations of her kids. It was almost tacitly putting me into remedial classes or lower track classes despite test scores or performance that would suggest otherwise. Like she was constantly having to advocate for me against a system that was naturally inclined to do me a disservice. And I remember my mom being at school all the time and I never quite connected the dot. Like why is mom at school all the time? <laughs> you know, uh, but lo and behold, it's because she's asking these difficult questions. Why is he not in the honors class? Like, like, explain that to me. Why is he not in the honors class? And so she was at the front lines of the heels of Brown versus Board of Education, along with many other black parents to say, my, my child deserves equal opportunity just like everybody else. She sounds amazing. Boy, I can see, I can see where you got your fight. <laughs> you do not suffer fools gladly. But, you know, let's talk about some of your mentors, aside from your dad and aside from your mom. As you went through college, 
did you meet up with anybody who really sort of added some rocket fuel to what was already a pretty, pretty focused engine that you had about being, finding success? Oh, without a doubt. Oh, without a doubt. There, there's a, a, a gentleman who, who rises to the top of the list. And, 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 and here's the story. So we were one of a handful of black families in East Windsor. There's another black family who lived in my neighborhood, the Abbott family, who had a son. And Wayne Abbott was my brother's age. He was two years ahead of me. And by coincidence, uh, my brother and Wayne both went to Rutgers. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I followed them to Rutgers as well. So when I was a first year student, they were in their third year. Fast forward to my second year at Rutgers, Wayne started a business as an undergraduate. And I remember coming back from the summer break and seeing Wayne at the student activities fair with a booth selling t-shirts that he designed. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, and this is a guy I grew up with who looks like me, yep. you know, African American, young. I'm like, I'm like, Wayne, what are you doing? He's like, I'm selling t-shirts. <laughs> I was like, are you making money? He said, does it look like I'm making money? I said, yeah. He said, I'm making money. All right. <laughs> and so I thought back to my years growing up. I was the kid who sold lemonade. I was the kid who tried to sell his toys to other kids in my neighborhood. <laughs> You know, those kids had no money. And yeah. uh, so I, I didn't sell any toys. And my mother found out and said, you can't sell the toys because I bought go. the toys. <laughs> said, if you're going to sell the toys, give me a cut. I said, you can't get a cut, mom. She said, well, guess what? So I said, what, mom? She said, your toy store is shut down. You're not selling any more toys. <laughs> so I, lemonade, candy. I mean, I was that entrepreneurial kid. But if you asked me, Liz, when I started college, what do you want to be when you graduate? My answer was, work in corporate America. Not a bad answer. Right. But Wayne prompted me to ask myself the question, if he can do it, why can't I do it? Yeah. And that literally set me on a completely different trajectory where the next year, my junior year, I started my first business and I've never technically had a job, Liz. I've, mm. I've only been self-employed my entire life. I've been an entrepreneur now because of Wayne Abbott. If you think back to the, the 1990s, um, there were two major revolutions that took place. One was technology. Uh -huh. uh, you know, the computers uh, exploded in the 1990s. And then the second was, was, was hip hop. You know, hip hop really exploded in the 1990s. I mean, it came out of the 70s and 80s. But it, and more importantly, uh, a certain thread of consciousness around hip hop. Yeah. Um, which is which has evolved since then, but there was a, a whole roster of, of of performers that were very Afrocentric and very centered on a, a message of black economic empowerment, and that was uh, a, a a cultural uh, kind of environment that I found myself entering into when I when I when I arrived at Rutgers University, and so Wayne was a product of that ethos as well. He just took action behind the ethos and said, I'm going to go ahead and do it now. Why wait till I'm out of school? Good. And, and that example and that environment from my days at Rutgers produced a number of other entrepreneurs. I have several classmates from Rutgers who also launched ventures while we were in school and have since gone on to enjoy the life of an entrepreneur. Because to your point, the message was, if we're going to control our economic destiny, Yes. If we're going to solve the problems of jobs in our communities, entrepreneurship is the way. Not to ignore the importance of corporate America or working for somebody else, and that is the path for some, but if we really want to control our agenda and our destiny, 
we have to own our own businesses in our communities. And, and I, 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 I was fed that message. I ate that message. I digested it and I loved how it tasted. <laughs> well, and, and you, you know, you ate the world. You said, I'm going to take a huge bite out of this world. Why not? And boy, did you ever, you, you worked as brand ambassador to some of the biggest names out there. You know, it's just un unbelievable what you decided you were going to take on. But taking on unconscious bias in corporate America, that to me is a very delicate effort, except you can't be delicate anymore, especially because that way wasn't exactly working, was it? No, no, no. I mean, this, 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 this topic of, of unconscious bias is one that has now been brought back to the forefront in, in, the, in the wake of what's transpired in Minneapolis and George Floyd and, 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 and how the underlying inequities that, mm -hmm. lead to what, that led to what happened in Minneapolis is not confined to policing. It is also reflective of what we see happening in professional circles and in, in corporate halls and in boardrooms uh, that our, our, our brains are wired in this way that we, uh, we make quick judgments, we make snap judgments, and that's not to say that we're bad for doing these things, to say that we're human. Well, it's human uh, nature. It's it human is, nature. It, it, it can human. you rewire that, Randall? How we we absolutely. We absolutely can, you know, and study after study have shown that one of the best ways to mitigate unconscious bias is to interact with people who are not like you. The more you challenge yourself to interact with people who think differently, who, you know, behave differently, who have different values, different ideology, different religion, different political orientation, that is among the best remedies for our unconscious bias and mitigating our proclivity uh, to put individuals into groups, to stereotype the group, and then to behave in ways that reflect the stereotypes. You know, I was reading Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. He had been ar arrested uh, for protesting without a permit, okay, um, back in the day. And as I'm reading this letter, which was so eloquent, he was stuck in this tiny cell he typed it. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And there was a line in there where he said, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. So looking at what happened to George Floyd, that is one massive extreme that is reflected through many different similar situations. But, you know, looking at a different shade of gray, when we, when we see what's happening in corporate America, it's not that corporate America hasn't woken up and said, yeah, we got it. We got to make sure we hired this number of African-Americans. It's, it's the climb that never seems to happen. It's, that ability to move your way up the ranks that I hear from African-Americans, I'm supposed to be grateful that I got in at entry level, and yet I'm never considered for the same exact thing that we all want. That's to make it all the way to the top. Mm -hmm. So how do you get corporate America to stay with their meritocracy? You don't want to promote somebody who's not going to cut the mustard, obviously. That's right. But by the same token, 
look at a resume and say, you know what? The experience might not be there, but the guts are there. Well, let me begin by saying this, that uh, any corporation that looks at their executive levels or even upper executive levels and does not see the, a reflection of the communities and the demographics of our country has got to look in the mirror and ask why. You know, it is statistically impossible that there aren't enough African-Americans qualified to lead Fortune 500s or to run major divisions. Uh, and you have to then ask why. And, and let me go back to something you said earlier, because uh, my, my, my last book was Black Faces in White Places. And in writing the book, I interviewed dozens of African-Americans who have made it to the top, who have broken through the proverbial glass ceiling. And I asked them to reflect on, my, my co-author Jeffrey Robinson and I, asked them to reflect on, well, what made you different? Like, how were you able to break through um, while others weren't. And, and what we really found was in, in so many instances, unless there was intentionality behind really ensuring that African-Americans and other minorities and women were given, you know, fair consideration, mm -hmm. consideration. for mentoring, for sponsorship, for stretch assignments, for exposure, unless there was intentionality behind it, then, then, then it was simply too difficult to overcome the hurdles. And each, each and every one of their stories spoke to someone saying, we're going to make certain that folks get a fair shot. We're going we're gonna to make certain that people get the kinds of opportunities that others, that others don't. And the thing I hear most consistently in doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work in corporate America um, amongst African Americans is, is to your point that they reach a certain level and then they just stagnate. Right. They, 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 they hit a, 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 a wall at like the mid-manager level and they sit there and we've done studies with corporations to help them understand, well, why are these people not able to break through? And then they leave and they see attrition and et cetera, et cetera. And it really gets back to this idea of intentionality, which says that if, if, if you assume which so many whites do that we interview, if you assume that your organization is colorblind, right, I got right, news right. for you, colorblind is not the gold standard. The gold standard is to see color, to see gender, to see difference, and still treat people fairly. That's the goal. Colorblind. You know, that was in the 70s and 80s. I grew up in the 70s, and in my house, that was it. We do not care. We love everybody. This is the way it's going to be in this after all that we've been through. And now I see that by just pretending that everybody's exactly the same, that's a real misstep. That's right. Because what you don't understand are the previous challenges and the layers of history, whether it was how all black, you know, platoons in World War II and World War I were, were treated when they came back and Vietnam and, and it just goes on and on. And I'm, I'm a little agitated uh, with the, the, private school that my kids are in because year after year they're learning about um, the explorers, right? Okay. Christopher Columbus and Magellan and okay. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not helpful to today. They know nothing about the Holocaust. They know nothing about all that's gone on post Martin Luther King Jr. They learn about Martin Luther King that for sure. But I, I feel like they need 
to take it a step further so that these future corporate workers understand it is so distressing that it's taken George Floyd and the loss of his life to bring us to this point. Mm-hmm. But you could go back to the Me Too. I mean, nobody died, but uh, you know, we had to come to this horrific head mm-hmm. before corporations woke up and said, "We got to have women." I mean, you know, right away you had, um, you know, Salesforce's CEO Mark Benioff, an amazingly liberal, wonderful guy, and he's sitting in a meeting of top managers. He looked around and he said, "Why are there no women in here?" And he called in his HR person, and this is what worries me about HR. They always make the HR people the black females, right? That's, it's like shunting to HR. And they bring in the HR person and she said, well, because you don't have any females at the top. He said, well, that's gotta change. And she said, yeah, well, you got other problems. All the women are not paid the same as the men in the same jobs. Mm. And he immediately said, I don't care what kind of hit it takes. And it took millions of dollars. He said, I want every female who's doing the same job as a male to be paid the same. So they had to raise all these women. Mm-hmm. It took me too. It took, you know, Les Moonves's, you know history coming out to the forefront that was so ugly. Or Roger Ailes at, at our own company, Fox. For this to happen, it's, it's unfortunate. But now that we're here... Randall, tell us how not to fumble the movement. And let me just connect a dot to say that the example you gave uh, at Salesforce is an example of the very intentionality yes, yes. that we discussed, we discussed a moment ago, that in the absence of that intentionality, women weren't being paid the same. In the absence of that intentionality, women weren't being given equal opportunity. And so yeah, that's- he's a loving liberal guy. There you go. There you go. Which says, if you're not intentional, you're likely doing a disservice. Like that's the lesson there, right? Like if you're not mm-hmm. explicitly asking, what are we doing wrong? Then you're definitely doing something wrong. <laughs> and you can't assume that because you're well-intentioned that your organization is functioning with good intent and certainly not with a, with a good impact. Um, and, and that's the beginning of the answer to your question, Liz, about where do we go? It, it, it's got to begin with a real commitment that's intentional you know, you can't just look at the numbers and say, how are we doing with minorities overall? How are we doing with women overall? We've got to look specifically at how are we doing with black women? How are we doing with black men? And, and what are their numbers looking like? And, 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 and why is that the case? And when we look at the, at the, at the life cycle from recruitment to hiring to promotion to advancement, where are our points of failure? Like, are we bringing enough in, but we're not retaining them? Are we retaining them, but not promoting them? Are we promoting them, but are they hitting a wall? Or is it all of the above? And only when we do that granular analysis of the pipeline, can we now begin to get very strategic about, so where does our organization need to begin to intervene? Is it, is it that we don't have equal pay? Is that we're losing people, you know, four or five years in, and then we have to wrap that into a plan? That says we're going to address training and development and awareness, unconscious bias. We're going to have accountability at the executive level. And the gold standard here is tying it to compensation. That if we don't see improvements, it's going to hit your bonus. It's going to hit your incentives. How is this different from affirmative action, if at all? Very different. You know, 
I'm sorry, in fact, not very different from affirmative action, meaning uh, when we say affirmative action and people confuse that with quotas, it's very different than quotas. We're not talking about compromising meritocracy to your earlier point. We only want to hire and bring in the best and the brightest. What we're saying, though, is we're going to be intentional and take affirmative action, proactive steps to make certain that we understand the problem and that we're addressing the problem. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals, to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. What brought you to think to yourself that you wanted to audition for The Apprentice? <laughs> so it, it was, it was recommended, me, recommended to me that I consider applying to be on The Apprentice. I who recommended you. Uh, it was my ex-wife who, who recommended me for the show. Okay. And she was a big fan of the show. Uh, she was she was watching it uh, one night, and out of the blue, uh, God bless her, she said to me, "I think you should go on The Apprentice, and I think you would win." And I blew her off. <laughs> <laughs> but the story gets better, Liz. The story gets better. She found the application. She printed it out. She put it on my desk. She made me fill it out. She made me send it in. And I said to her, this is a waste of time. Honey, you missed the whole point. <laughs> She's your ex. She wanted you to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I, I got to give her credit. You know, um, a million people applied. 18 were chosen. I, I, they, they selected me, uh, you know, and I was the only African-American to win. So uh, I give her credit to this day for, for, for being unrelenting because uh, I, I believe we wouldn't be having this conversation were it not for the exposure and the spotlight that The Apprentice afforded me and the ability for it to open up doors that would have been more difficult for me to open up and open. So it was, it, it was, it was overall a blessing that she basically forced me to apply. Um, and I'm thankful. Tell me about that moment that you won. First of all, when you entered, did you ever think you would win? That's a really good question. Um, no, I was season four. Uh, I had the benefit of seeing season one and two. They were filming, uh, they were, they were editing season three while we were uh, filming uh, season four. And 
I can't say that I thought I was going to win, although I believed I had as good a shot as anybody else. Um, but there was an episode about midway through the season where Donald fired four people in one episode mm. uh, because they, they failed that miserably. And when I came back to Trump Tower after that firing, I looked around the suite at who was left. And with all due respect, I was like, I could win. Like, I can beat the remaining candidates here. Like, I see a pathway that I can pull this off. And I was undefeated as a project manager. I had a winning record with all the teams I was on. And at that point, I shifted from I don't know to I'm certain I could pull this off. And I drove forward from there. But the last thing I'll share with you, Liz, is uh, the, the, the auditioning process for The Apprentice uh, the very end of the process involves a battery of tests, psychological ex- evaluation, psychiatric review, personality tests, physical exam. And they build up this whole profile of who they think you are. And I look back in retrospect and realize there's a reason why they did that, because I think there's two people who they selected to be on the show, people they thought could legitimately win and run one of Donald's companies and people they know are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Because crazy makes good television. That's exactly right. And the challenge is figuring out which category you fall into. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about the moment you won. So I win. So, so, you know, The Apprentice, 18 candidates, elimination every week. Grueling. Final episode, final task, Lincoln Center, 14 million people, live television. (laughs) Right? It can't be more dramatic than this, Liz. Donald turns to me and says, Randall, you're hired. Five seconds later, he says, Randall, I got a question I want to ask you. I say, what's the question? He says, Randall, what do you think about hiring your adversary, the runner-up? And the whole room went silent. The whole world that was watching went silent. And, and in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, I have an undefeated record. She's a losing record. I have a winning team record. She's a losing team record. And here's, and here's the, the statistic most people forgot from my finale. Our final task was a fundraiser. I raised $15,000 in a day for the Elizabeth Glazier Pediatric AIDS Foundation. That was our task, to raise money. Okay. My adversary raised $0. She raised $0 in the final task. So I'm thinking to myself, how in the world are we having a conversation about sharing a title when I say humbly, I'm the clear winner? And so it was insulting. And when you layer on top of it, my adversary was white. The three prior winners were white. The three winners after me were white. Now we get into a deeper conversation about why are you asking me to share the title when you asked nobody before and now hindsight teaches us you asked nobody after. Oh, but wait. You also had cameras, live cameras in your face, and an audience. And what are you thinking? Because I can tell you right now, being Canadian, my parents are Canadian. I was always, oh, be be nice. And I might have flipped out and said, well, I want to appear to be like a leader who shares. What was going through your mind at that point? So I'll give you some behind the scenes intel. Uh, there were, there were rumors circulating amongst the crew and the cast that Donald was going to attempt a sharing of the title. Okay. So it wasn't a complete surprise. Okay, okay. 
I had gone through mock final boardrooms with my executive team at my company, BCT Partners, and we played out various scenarios. He hires you straight out. He wants to, he hires both of you straight out. He hires her and not you. And we went through mock scenarios. I was prepared for the scenario under which he hired both of us. Wow. I wasn't prepared for him to hire me and then ask me, what do you think about hiring your adversary? I wasn't prepared, but I had a guiding principle Liz. and here's my guiding principle. If I don't walk away from the table as the sole and single winner, then I was prepared to say to Donald, if you can't see that I'm the winner of this season, then guess what, Donald? I quit. You're fired. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, yes. Being prepared for any scenario is brilliant. Yes, yes. So my response ended up being, Donald, if there's going to be one winner tonight, it's going to only be one, and it's going to be me. Those are my almost exact words. Mm -hmm. And he said, do you think that's how it should be? I said, yes, that's how I think it should be. He said, okay then that's how we'll do it, Randall. Okay. He said, I could have been convinced. I'm like, Donald, there's no convincing. Yeah, yeah. I'm the sole winner. And the message that night that I sent was getting back to meritocracy. Let's tie some dots together. Getting back to meritocracy. When you have earned the victory, don't be afraid to claim the victory. Amen. I love that. And you earned it. So you went to work for him. You became a so-called apprentice. What's Talk a little bit about the number one thing you learned working for him that you feel was actually a good thing. Start with that. So the the thing I learned that was good, um, this was 15 years ago Mm -hmm. that I won The Apprentice. Uh, I was much less experienced. I was bright-eyed and uh, a sponge. Yeah, for for wanting to learn about what it meant to operate at, at, at a high level in business. And so the idea of working for a billionaire uh, in a billion dollar organization was what initially uh, attracted me after being convinced and forced to apply. (laughs) And so I was already running my own business, as you know. Um, And how old were you? Let me just get that. 35. I was 35. Got it. 35. Um, 34, actually, to be more specific. 34. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm 49 now, 15 years ago. And, um, I was already running a multi-million dollar company, same company I'm running now, BCT Partners. Uh, And I had this idea that to run a multi-billion dollar organization is somehow markedly different and dramatically more complicated or more difficult than what I was doing. And what it did was it normalized big business for me. Like I came into the organization, I was running a $110 million project and I'm in meetings with executives and I'm having conversations. I'm thinking, This is no different than what we do at my company. The same conversations, the same issues, the same challenges. They just have more zeros on their budgets than I do. And so I left the apprenticeship with this renewed sense of what can I accomplish? What should I be expecting of myself? I raised the bar as far as where I could aspire to be because it demystified what I believe to be something different than what I was already doing. Well, exactly. And, and I think the value of working at a Trump organization like that, and so much of this is something that I would bring back to poorer Black communities to show people what can be accomplished. You know, there's a famous runner, Roger Bannister, who finally broke the, God forbid, I don't even know, the four-minute mile, and nobody had done it up until him. 
But once he did it, in the two years after, four other people did it. And I think it's psychological because they saw that it could be done. So you saw how high you could actually go and add those zeros. Am I correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for, you know, for our communities, it's, it's a combination of uh, exposure uh, to paint a picture of what's possible and then mm-hmm. giving people equal opportunity to then pursue those paths. You know, the tragedy lies in, you know, how many Oprah Winfrey's never had a chance to become Oprah Winfrey because the path that they pursued was just so, you know, kind of marred with potholes and obstacles and hurdles that it just wasn't, wasn't possible. You know, I mean, Oprah defied the odds in that, in that regard. Um, So it's a matter of both giving folks examples of what's possible and then giving them the, you know, the opportunity to then make that possible. We're coming up on an election and things have gotten heated. I'm interested to know, having known Donald Trump up close and seen him operate and putting all that together with everything that you've seen on the national stage, tell me what you think of him now. I think our our listeners, whether they're for or against, would be very interested to know. Absolutely. And and it's interesting because when Donald announced his candidacy uh, four years ago, I actually organized a press conference with other apprentice candidates who, like me, had the opportunity to work and to know Donald. And the things I said during that press conference are the same things I will say to you now. Um, Four years ago, I said, having gotten to know Donald and having the opportunity to work in his organization, I don't think he's fit for global leadership. And the reason being, and this ties into what we're talking about right now, is that Donald has a tremendous blind spot when it comes to seeing, understanding, appreciating, and leading people who are not like him, Mm. you know, and, and, and now it has become an incredible Achilles heel for him because his inability to appreciate matters of race and inequity and disparity and what's happened in Minneapolis is the same reason why he's hunkered in the white house, having yet to make a definitive statement that could bring our country together. I was an executive in the Trump organization. I saw no one for my entire year at that level who looked like me. I was the only one, which means when I left my apprenticeship, there was no one at that level who looked like me. And I saw Donald's inability to understand difference. And, and here's the other Achilles heel and his unwillingness to accept opinions that challenge his own. And what we saw was a revolving door of people who would come in, challenge him and go. And in the White House, we've seen a revolving door of people who come in and challenge him and then go. Mattis being perhaps the latest and greatest example of somebody who was in, left, and is now concerned about Donald's leadership. Just one of other examples. So uh, I say then and I say now that Donald's greatest weakness, which sometimes can speak to his base, um, you know, his, his understanding of people that reflect his, his identity is his liability, which is people who don't reflect his identity. Let me end with this, bringing it back to George Floyd. How do we all ensure that the slogans don't die off and that the movement becomes simply a moment? Well said. In fact, I'll be... Um, 
leading a discussion uh, at, at Citigroup with their uh, Black employees. And the title of the session is, Is This a Moment or a Movement? Mm-hmm. That's the title of the session. So you, you, you've spoken quite eloquently uh, to that, Liz, um, and very astute in, in that observation. Uh, I, I think the way that we make this a movement and not a moment is to focus on root causes. And that's not to focus on rioters or to focus on the divisions um, or even to focus on the behaviors of the officer that, uh, that murdered George Floyd, but to get under the hood on policies, practices, programs, institutional uh, you know, uh, uh, infrastructure, systemic racism, institutional racism that produces people like that police officer, that produces departments like the Minneapolis Police Department, that produces the disparities we see in corporate America. So we have to look more deeply at, at, at what are our policies, what are our procedures, what our, our institutional ways of conducting business that have to be dismantled at the government level, at the corporate level, at the community level that can produce, and we have to make those, we have to identify them now and get those demands on the table now before Mm -hmm. the window of opportunity closes because it will close. Yeah, oh, believe me, it will close. It has closed. And I see it just going back to the Me Too thing that it's kind of closing. That's right. And uh, people are done and then you got to, you got to stick get ready for the backlash mm-hmm. <laughs> because now it's, Oh, you know, why should we all be painted with the Harvey Weinstein brush? You know, we're not all that bad, you know, kind of thing. And, and it's true, mm-hmm. of course, but it, it doesn't erase the fact that certain groups have consistently been undermined or tripped on their way up the ladder. So uh, let us, let us hope and let us move to make sure that that is true and that your efforts do not go unheeded. And uh, it's great to have you, Randall, and so good to hear your stories. Thank you very much for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you, Liz, for having me. Pleasure and honor to be in the program. Looking forward to future dialogues with you. Randall Pinkett. Folks, I don't need to say anything more except to promote my own show. Hello, Uh, Monday through Friday, (laughs) The Claim and Countdown. Everybody, everybody's welcome because everybody cares about their money. They want to preserve it. They want to grow it. And the final hour of trade is the most important hour, as you always know. So I'll see you then. And thanks so much for tuning in. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.